Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. On this episode, Shorenstein Center Director Nick O'Mealy talks to Cathy O'Neill, data scientist and author of the new book, Weapons of Math Destruction, How Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy. She discussed how some algorithms can have an invisible but important and often destructive impact on people's lives. Kathy O'Neill is an incredible data scientist with a fantastic new book I read this weekend, Weapons of Math Destruction, How Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy. From targeted advertising and insurance to education, policing, and prison sentences, O'Neill looks at how algorithms of big data are targeting the poor, reinforcing racism, and amplifying inequality, and calls on policymakers to regulate their use. Kathy O'Neill is author of the blog MathBabe.org. She earned a PhD in mathematics from this August institution, Harvard, and then taught at Barnard College before, before moving to the private sector. She's worked as a data scientist at several startups, building models that predict people's purchases and clicks. The greatest minds of our generation dedicated to getting people to click more. O'Neill started the lead program in data journalism at Columbia, and she appears weekly on the Slate Money podcast. Kathy, welcome. Thank you. You have, like, a voice for radio. (laughs) Yeah, so that's better than a face for radio. (laughs) Kathy, I absolutely loved your book, but I thought maybe you could start us with your trajectory, your story. You go from academia to Wall Street, big money, to Occupy Wall Street. Yes. Um, so I worked at D.E. Shaw. In, I left academics. I left my tenure track job at Barnard 2007. And I got to D.E. Shaw like a month after Larry Summers, actually. And I worked with him there. Um, and then like a few months after that, basically August, early August 2007, um, the world started falling apart from within. I, I think most people think of the financial crisis as having started in 2008, but it, it, like within finance, it actually started in 2007. Um, and I was quickly kind of disappointed and disillusioned by the response from the people um, who I considered experts, um, who I sort of implicitly trusted, because I was actually very, very naive and sort of, I was a mathematician, so that is to say I was an artist, really, if you think about it. Like, mathematicians do not think about the real world. They imagine that um, any impact is a positive impact because that's how it kind of works out in math. So when I when I decided I wanted to be part of the real world and I wanted a real world impact, like going to finance just for me seemed like, oh, great. Uh, here's some people that will, like, will appreciate my skills and my organizational abilities which is not always true um, in, in academics, especially if you're a woman. Anyway, that's kind of a long way of saying that I started becoming more um, s- skeptical of what I was actually part of. And then, um, you know, when we started seeing trouble in 2007, we, I, I started getting educated with, you know, by the people working at D.E. Shaw about what was actually happening in the collateralized debt markets and this, this concept of a triple A rating and how you'd have like terribly rated, very risky tranches of mortgage-backed securities that were recycled into 
new mortgage-backed securities and then retranched in the like the top tranche of that would now be somehow AAA. Um, so like like basically you're taking so, you know ugly sausage meat and mixing it together and claiming to have very good sausage at the top at the top of the heap. Um, and I was you know this this sounds wrong, um, and it was wrong. It was it was a mathematical lie. And considering that as an idealist mathematician, I had sort of thought of mathematics as a sort of like a, the refuge of of where you don't have to have political disagreements because you can all agree on math because it's true. Um, to see it sort of being used as a shield, I would say, for the for essentially corrupt practices in finance was actually shameful to me. Um, I was like, math deserves better than this. Like, we're basically the AAA ratings allowed the mortgage market to balloon. Allowed you know people like in in the Norway Norwegian sovereign fund to like invest in these things because it looked like safe investments because again PhD mathematicians were like supposed to be supposedly busy at work diligently making sure that everything was safe and it really was just not it was it was it was corrupt so I left finance I should say I spent two years um, doubling down on this idea that like with better math we could fix the problem so I went to risk for two years I left each I went to the place called risk metrics with the hope that I could sort of help the risk model, this was in 2009, so after Lehman fell, after AIG was bailed out, um, and I worked on the credit default swap model that we were using. Um, risk metrics did an overnight risk assessment for most of the banks and, and hedge funds on the street. Like, it was very, very large. Um, and I, really, I worked on the credit default swap model with the idea like, oh, if we understood risk better on a mathematical level, then we'd have a safer world. And I, I came up with a better way of understanding risk. Essentially, the distribution of returns is not Gaussian distribution, not a bell curve. But then I found out very quickly that nobody cared. <laughs> um, that like, in fact, risk wasn't something that people cared about and wanted to protect themselves from. It was much more of something that they can say to their investors, look, we're, we have a overnight risk uh, model. And no thank you, we would not like to know better know more about our risk because honestly the way I was going to do it was going to show them they were they had more risk on their books than they wanted to admit or that they cared about so the big banks just didn't care at all um, and then I realized that this is not a mathematical problem this is a you know it's essentially a political problem or something and that we're using math again we're weaponizing math we're making because people are afraid of math and they trust math and they stop asking questions when they see formulas, when they see something that is mathematically sophisticated. And I was like, this is gross, I'm gonna leave. I left, I started Math Babe, essentially as a, a way to kind of expose the corrupt practices that I had seen in finance. And I, uh, and I started, and when Occupy broke out about six months later, I joined them. But I should say that like I had to have a day job because I have three kids and I live in New York City. Um, so. I got a job as a data scientist. Like I was like, okay, that's easy because I just had to rename my title data scientist because basically you do the same job in data science as you do in, in finance as a quant. You like predict people rather than markets. It was very easy switch technically. But what I noticed was that everybody in data science was extremely drunk on the Kool-Aid of this idea that 
um, whatever we're doing with big data is going to solve problems and make the world a better place. And I was like, wait a second, why do we assume that? Because I had just come from finance where that was not at all true. And honestly, it doesn't seem all that different. In fact, there is a difference, but it's actually uh, maybe making it, in some sense, it's, it's a turn for the worse. And what I mean by that is, at least in finance, when like the financial crisis erupted, like everyone in the world noticed, it was like obvious. The failure of a mathematical model in finance got everybody's attention. But the kinds of ways that, that models fail in data science happen like silently. And what I mean by that is um, the first one I came across was the teacher value added model. We could talk about that, of course. But basically, it was like teachers were getting these scores that were, weren't explained to them. And sometimes they were getting fired or at least denied tenure based on bad scores. They couldn't appeal them because they were, it was proprietary and secret. Um, they had this extremely powerful, they had this extreme power, but, but no transparency. No accountability. No account, which meant no accountability. And that meant that people that were fired or, or didn't get tenure, they were silent. They were silenced. You know, they they lost their jobs and they just quit, like individually at different times. I should add, sort of left the system. Um, and it, so there was never any moment of reckoning where everyone was like, "Holy crap, that didn't work!" You're like we people didn't even notice, and because it because it happened at this individual level. And I started noticing that pattern that like data science algorithms. Um, sorted the world into winners and losers. And the losers sometimes didn't even know that they'd been scored. They just didn't get opportunities that the winners got. And so we'd ha we could have a crisis of terrible models. We wouldn't even know because they're secret. And we'd never have that moment where the whole world said, we've got to do better than that. Which is to say that just because the world said we had to do better than that with finance, that it actually got better. I'm not claiming that. I'm just saying that like at least people acknowledge that finance has some work to do. Whereas in, in data science, it seems like the Kool-Aid just keeps getting poured. And we don't, we don't have enough skepticism. So that's, that's when I decided to write the book. The, the book in some ways paints a fairly grim picture in two in two ways one is the just the prevalence of algorithms in predetermining a lot of things in your life from uh what you buy to what you can afford how much credit you're given to what kind of jobs you might be eligible for uh all the way to uh I th it seemed like almost like a downward spiral of uh racism and inequality where the poor get poor and end up in prison more often for longer periods of time and all of this happening by the supposedly immutable logic of math, yeah. right? And um, and I just wondered about I wondered about w you know where we a, a, a the the prevalence of it was shocking to me, and I try and pay attention to these things. And B, where do we go from here? You talk in the end of the book about a Hippocratic oath for data scientists, but I also wondered about positive visions of the way we can use maybe fight fire with fire mathematically speaking yeah i should say one of the one like the, the reason i specifically the, the moment i decided to write this book if i don't if you don't mind telling me yeah. telling that story is when a venture capitalist came to my startup and i was i, I was basically like l predicting purchases on expedia and cheap tickets and orbits and for people that were unlikely to purchase i was offering them an ad 
So we would, like, the idea would be that Expedia would get a few pennies if they didn't get, versus getting nothing. Whatever, it was stupid. Like, the point being that I was separating people into, like, the high-value customer and the low-value customer, and, like, I was, you know, who deserves this opportunity, who's not going to get this, whatever. It was pretty benign. And after all, it was just travel. It, for, these are for people who have extra cash, whatever. I didn't think of what I was doing as particularly pernicious. But then a venture capitalist came to visit us because we, he was thinking of investing in our round B funding. And he said, he made this, he made everyone, like, the company asked everyone to sit in a group like this and listen to him talk. And he, he was talking about the future of tailored advertising. And he was like, I can't wait for the day when all I ever see are trips to Aruba and jet skis. And I never again have to see another University of Phoenix ad because that's not for people like me. And a lot of the people around me were like, ha ha, ha of course not. You know, and I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> um, like, whatever happened to the democratizing force of the internet? You know, like, I thought, but no, no, this was actually like kind of by construction, the venture capitalists who are the ones that are influential in, in creating the world of our online experience, their stated intention is to make that world a place where we are segregated and siloed and segmented to the point where by class, you know, so that the people who are the, the winners of that system, and those are included everyone in that room, um, technologists for sure, um, were given opportunities, and the people at the other end of the spectrum were preyed upon. And I didn't know that much about um, University of Phoenix or for-profit colleges, but I started looking into it, and I was like, this stuff is highly predatory. Um, these are colleges that look specifically for um, people that are eligible for federal aid, which is to say they're poor. If you understand how online tailoring, uh, online advertising works, there's an auction for people's eyeballs, right? And whoever's willing to pay the most will get to place the ad in front of someone. Well, if you're a poor person, then who are you worth the most for? And that the answer is somebody that can get money from the most amount your of existence. Right not, so in this case, they're not actually getting money from that poor person. They're getting money from the federal government because they convinced that poor person to sign up for online, usually online for-profit college classes. And the, the kind of, like, I'm sure you guys have seen, like, ITT Tech and, like, Corinthian College have been shut down recently, thank God. But, like, the recruiting manuals were telling the recruiters to literally, once they located these people, to, to find their, their pain their cone of pain, and to promise those people, typically single mothers of color who wanted a better life for their children, promise them that their, all their problems would go away once they signed up for, for online classes. And in the meantime, they'd get this enormous debt load, and then if, if they graduated, which was a big if, because it was like a 30% graduation rate often, if they graduated, their diploma would be no, worth no more than a high school diploma. So this is like predatory. Payday loans, another predatory uh, predatory um, industry that makes perfect, efficient use of the tailored <laughs> advertising ecosystem. So what I realized is that I was I was helping build the techniques, and these techniques once built the infrastructure, the even. infrastructure, the techniques. I would I was contributing to this system, which from from the, for the people like me seemed like a success. But for the invisible people that we would never see, because I never saw a University of Phoenix ad. Right? I never saw one. And I was like, who was he talking about? How big a deal is that? I looked it up. It was the number one Google ad buyer the quarter that he talked. Number one. It was $350 million in that quarter. 
from University of uh, from Apollo Group, which was the parent company. So anyway, my point is that what I and then I started looking around. I found these like, algorithms that would um, that people who are trying to get minimum wage jobs would these risk the personality test they'd have to take. Sixty-six percent of job applicants per year have to take a personality test in order to get an interview for minimum wage work. Which, by the way, I'm never gonna take that personality test. Then I found about I found out about recidivism risk algorithms that judges were using um, in order to to um, decide the length of sentencing for people. And the risk risk scores probably very likely are racist because they're based on um, all sorts of racist arrest data and these questionnaires, which the questions of which are proxies for race and class. Like all these things, and, and every single one of them, I kept on, whenever I've discovered one, the, the people that were losers from the system were the least likely to have lawyers, <coughs> to have representation, to, and to, like, it, to even have the voice to complain about it in a sort of, in a, in a way that, that, that the sort of mainstream media would pick up, that, that I would notice. So I just, it was like, the, there needs to be, <laughs> there needs to be like a reckoning here. Now I forgot what your question was. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're, you're describing like a very dark data cycle. Yeah, yeah. And I'm wondering, how, uh, one way to break out of it, you talk about is like a Hippocratic oath for data scientists. Right, right, right. Another way you talk about is regulation. Yeah. But I'm also wondering about ways that we can see math or algorithms working for the public good. It's really hard. Um, one of the reasons it's hard to, to expect these algorithms to turn around and be helpful is because people make a lot of money off this stuff. Like that for-profit college stuff I just explained, that's very profitable. What it comes down to is that big data algorithms are, they have values. They're never objective. Just to be clear, they're never objective. Because when we build an, an, an algorithm, we define the data that goes into it, which are, is often biased, and we also often curate the data. We decide which data is relevant, et cetera. But more importantly, we define the objective, the objective function. We define what the definition of success is. And let's just be clear, with the, with the for-profit colleges example, Google made a ton of money off that. The for-profit colleges made a ton of money off of that. So it was a win-win situation if you, if you ignore what actually happened to society, um, which was being largely ignored at the time. So it's, you know, it, I'm just saying like, it's, it's hard to imagine the, the, those algorithms suddenly being used not to make profit, but to make sure that everyone gets the best possible education. I just don't, the, the, the role of government has to come in here, right? The role of government is to make sure that the colleges that get federal aid are actually giving people educations. And that's why we've seen movements on the part of the Obama administration to do that. So you have a room full of public policy students yeah. who with any luck will get jobs in government and what should, and make policies, what should they understand about about data and algorithms. Okay, such a great opportunity, and thank you for having me. <laughs> I think the most important thing to understand is that algorithms are not inherently objective. There's, they're just decision-making processes. There's nothing, and although there, there are sophisticated mathematical elements to them, there is no reason that anybody should be wowed by their math the math and like it's just it's a, just a black box imagine and this is what I often do is 
imagine like an alien force from the Mars comes down and says, um, we're, we have a way to assess teachers, whether they're good or not. And we're going to give each teacher a number between zero and a hundred. And we're not going to explain why, but you can trust us. <laughs> like we would be like, that's bullshit, right? We would not accept that from an alien force. Um, the only reason we accept that now is because people say mathematics. And like they wave their hands. It's magic. It's magic. And, they, and people are like, well, I, I'm not a mathematician, so I can't object to this. Like, no, you can object to it. It's actually not fair for someone to be assessed at a job, especially a civil servant, when they don't even understand the, the process by which they're being judged. Also, um, if you're talking about public policy, like I just want to throw in that I made, I, I filed a Freedom of Information Act request to get the source code for that, that teacher validated model, and I was told no. Not only could I not get that, but nobody in New York City, when I was like looking for the New York City version of it, had access to that either because of this ridiculous contract that had been signed between the city of uh, DOE in New York and these, the, the, um, the, the data science um, group, actually it was a, called the Value Added Research Center in Madison, Wisconsin. It's like not nonprofit, but still the big data group that built that model. They had this contract that said like, nobody ever gets to understand this formula. So it's somehow the DOE was like, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna believe this even though we don't understand it. So that's just a bogus line of reasoning. And it has nothing to do with math. It has to do with, like, don't you think people deserve to know how they're being assessed, right? Um, that's one thing. And another thing about public policy is... So I, one thing would be to demand transparency, demand transparency. in modeling. <laughs> especially when it has to do with, with government, right? So especially, like, similarly with predictive policing and with recidivism risk algorithms, those are secret. That, that I mean... So some famous, some like good FOIA lawyers who I talked to said that that's actually illegal. Those contracts are actually illegal. That if you're do, if you're sort of, because they're kind, in some sense, especially if you think about the recidivism risk algorithms changing the sentences of people of criminal defendants, that is tantamount to a law on the books, which like we have the right to understand our laws, but we're they're secret. So that's that's something we need to address. The other thing is that we already have laws. Um, about f fair hiring practices. So the, you know, I told you about the um, personality test um, that 60% of, 66% of people have to take, job applicants. So I interviewed somebody whose son failed one of these tests and he has reason to believe he failed the test because it was filtering for um, a mental health disorder. So he's, he's suing on behalf of any, a class action lawsuit on behalf of anyone who's ever taking this test, that it, it's violations of the Americans with Disability Act. Which is to say we have these fair hiring practices, all sorts of um, anti-discrimination laws, et cetera, et cetera. But when we have an algorithm involved, we somehow don't interrogate it. We exempt it. In some we way. exempt it. Why? Like we literally, these companies are replacing their, their human resources departments with algorithms in order to save money. And they are not checking to see whether these the the algorithms they've replaced their HR with are actually legal. And nobody else is checking either because they're intimidated by the math. I mean, that's my assumption. I don't know why they're not checking them. Well, you know, one of the things I hate most in the entire world is the genius bar at Apple. Because <laughs> I just think it's profoundly dangerous for them to think they're geniuses and for us to think they're geniuses, right? That kind of puts a black box on something that we're all kind of overly dependent on. 
Yeah, I mean, exactly. A lot of this, um, like, a lot of, along with the um, hand-waving and the word mathematics or magic, is this idea that this, this algorithm is so complicated that you petty you little person <laughs> will not be able to handle it, you know, in your brain. Um, and it's, it's insulting, it's, you know, um, and it's not even true. Like, there are plenty of ways in which algorithms could be interpretable. For example, you could just force the algorithm to be interpretable, and there is precedent for that. There's a law that says if you get denied a credit card offer, you're allowed to ask why, and they have to give you a reason. That actually forces credit card companies to use a certain kind of algorithm for their decision called a decision tree, which makes it uh, possible for them to go up the decision tree and, and explain why you've been rejected. Right now, we have no such rules about very, very important things like, why didn't I get this job? You know, why didn't I get at least an interview for this job? Oh, sorry, it's too complicated. You couldn't possibly understand it. Um, and beyond like interpretability, pure interpretability, we could at the very least have regulators like, you know, equal opportunity, uh, equal, what's that called, EEOC. We could have them at the very least audit those algorithms for fairness and legality without having necessarily the algorithm itself, like the source code open source or, or um, a purely interpretable algorithm. I'm just saying there's different levels of transparency. And right now we, we have this, we've somehow accepted the argument that it's so complicated and mathematical that nobody could possibly understand it, including us, and we are not gonna even bother to check whether it's fair. Despite the fact that mountains of public policy, public spending, and millions of people's lives are affected. Yeah. Let's open it up to some questions. Okay, yeah. Tell us who you are. Hi, I'm Barbara Kibbiet. I'm a PhD student in the Sociology and Social Policy program, and my dissertation is sort of looking at Fair Credit Reporting Act and other early legislation to deal with some of these issues um, in a particular domain. Um, so the story that you told about the <coughs> gentleman who never wanted to see another University of Phoenix ad ever again sort of um, was an example of how um, <coughs> various algorithms can lead to funneling by class, but class isn't a protected class, <laughs> you know, as <laughs> are race, you know, sex, marital status, etc. Have you thought at all about how you reconcile those two things, sort of what you identified as, it seems like, the primary issue versus the regulatory regime that, that we currently have? It's a really, really good point. Um, and I'm not, I'm not an expert on that. I have a, a sort of very... <coughs> naive sense of what's fair and what's not. And I would say that's obviously unfair, which, but it's very, very common. Um, but I don't have, I can't appeal to a law, but I, because as you said, there's no protected class of, of. In your defense, you don't have a naive sense of this. You have a profound sense of justice. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, it's a problem. It really is a problem because unless we start turning class into a protected class, like wh what we're gonna do is we're just see more of this. Because that's what the internet economy and many of these algorithms which are outside, actually outside the internet economy are depending on. Um, you know, it, one of the things I, this is kind of, one of the things I worry about the most in terms of things that are slightly outside the scope of current regulation um, is, data, is health data, right? We have all sorts of like health, <coughs> leaky health data that's like going out into the ether unprotected by HIPAA, like Fitbit data, whatever, all these wellness programs that, that are um, 
that we're required to be part of unless we want to pay $600 more for health insurance, et cetera. And, and moreover, just our shopping habits, which are now proxies, because that's what big data actually does, by the way. Big data is very good at using proxies of like consumer, consumer habits for other things, right? And I feel like that stuff is, is the easiest and most, the biggest, juiciest target for segregation by class. Because at the end of the day, um, our health outcomes are separable by class. And what, what I worry about here is that, you know, because people in the lower classes are much more likely to get diabetes, which is actually quite expensive, it means that um, there's a, like a finely tuned sense of how, what your class is, what your diabetes risk is, and essentially what your kinds of future health costs are going to be. And that stuff is going to be unprotected and it can easily be used against us when we, for example, apply for a job. Um, or if we apply, or if we get health insurance, depending on, because right now, thank God for Obamacare, because it's like illegal to charge someone for a pre-existing condition, but it's not illegal to charge someone for a future condition. Um, so this is a real problem. Big data is like a, actually. You, you, you mean that, that, that using data and kind of predictive analytics, health care companies could identify the people most likely to get diabetes in the future yeah. and then charge them yeah. more. And they probably would never frame it that way, obviously. Shanor? Um, hi, I'm a master's in public policy student at the Kennedy School. And my, my sense is, and coming to the example you used of judges and using algorithms to determine recidivism rates, um, is that we've come to this place because there were individual judges who were using their very racist judgments to discriminate against people. Um, so do you believe that we actually could build algorithms that are less racist or... or than humans? That's the question, right? Is, is, there, is it just a tool that's in the hands of the wrong people or is it something that Inherent. is an unsolvable thing? Like there is no God algorithm. So algorithms have replaced racist human beings and 50 years down the line, we'll replace racist algorithms with something else that's racist. <laughs> that's such an important question because the truth is I don't have evidence that the recidivism risk algorithms are making the system worse, even though I believe them to be racist. Um, what I think they're doing essentially propagating what we've, what we've done in the historically. So probably for judges who use them, who used to be, who are essentially extremely racist, they're probably tempering them slightly. Um, and for other judges, um, they're, they're, they're pushing them up, right? Because they tr trust them as scientific um, ob and objective. Um, and I, the answer to your question is absolutely, I think we could do better than humans. And I think, um, and I think we could do it with data. And I think we just haven't done it yet. So I, that's, uh, the truth is I'm a, a big believer in data. Um, but what we have done essentially is had, we've just thrown these algorithms out there, assuming that they were safe and that they were fairer than our existing system, and there's no reason to believe that. And Parkers are based on the existing system. They're just propagating our past practices. They're saying, what did we do in the past? Let's repeat that. They're automating our past. And we would, auto we would want audit to automate our past practices if we had a perfect system. But I, but I also think about, um, I'm going to do this in the realm of something, I, or I'm comfortable, which is, uh, Obama, you know, 2012 online fundraising, uh, it was very driven by A-B testing, right? Yeah. And uh, and essentially 
uh, models it would predict likelihood to give. Mm-hmm. And that meant that it kind of weeded substance out of the emails, <laughs> right? That you ended up with subject lines that said, hey, or that said, win dinner with George Clooney or Beyonce at the same time as, you know, the vice president is, is essentially endorsing gay marriage for the first time in American history. And the, 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 the president is signing executive order around dreamers. Like there were real major policy things happening in that campaign. But the math of the fundraising drives the communications and the messaging to a, a place that has no substance. Yeah. That's actually really sad. I didn't know yeah. that. <laughs> um, I believe it, though, because, it, the, the, again, the goal isn't to inform the public. The goal of political targeting it's ads money. is not to inform the public. It's to make money. It's efficient for the campaign, inefficient for democracy. That's absolutely true. I do want to say, though, going back to your question, that I, I think what we need to do is monitor and audit the algorithms for fairness so we don't as you say, in 100 years, just replace this system with yet another racist system. We can check. However, having said that, um, I call for, like, a lot of the times I call for, like, having a larger look, like a larger feedback system and make sure that this stuff is improving over time, like your A-B tests do in political campaigns. That's actually not sufficient for our current criminal justice system, right? Because a lot of these recidivism risk algorithms are actually pretty accurate, but they're accurate because our policing system is racist. So if you want to audit, don't just audit to see whether, oh yeah, you're right, like black people are 50 times more likely to come back to prison as white people, so it's, it's, it's all good. The, the real thing is like, what we really want to do is, why? We want to look at, the, we want to be researchers. We want to put on our intellectual curiosity hats and say, why is there such a discrepancy between blacks and whites? Is it because they don't um, have enough money when they get out? They're unlikely to get a job because of felony convictions and racism? Because they don't, their friends don't have enough money, they have no place to live? Like, what we'd like to do is actually understand um, wh- why that, that discrepancy exists and how to intervene to make it smaller. That's not what we're doing at all. I'm going to go to David and then back to the set. Yeah, um, so this, is, uh, this is wonderful. I really like this. Some things I've to touch on too in my class. And but I'm sorry, I'm a lecturer here uh, teaching digital government. Uh, just maybe two quick thoughts. One is um, I, I think like the notion that um, algorithms can be used for the public benefit, I believe that to be true, but it's, like, it's just not an algorithm question. It's that the it's a, these questions are deeply political because they create winners and losers. And anytime you create winners and losers in the private sector, that's kind of not a big deal. But anytime you create winners and losers in a public sector, that's a really, really big deal. And all the power discrepancies that you talk about in the algorithm, like if you're marginalized in the market, you're probably also marginalized in the political arena. So I think they can be done, but you have a huge challenge on how you're going to mobilize political capital to, to make that happen. So, and I think that's the real problem. It has nothing to do with the map. It has nothing to do with the algorithm. Um, what I, my, my question I'd love to ask you is, um, I, I kind of wonder if your metaphor of the Hippocratic Oath is not the right one, because I think there's a closer one, which is, you know, most engineers, like, you have to get the ring, usually from a bridge that fell down and people died, and, and they actually have to go through some form of ethics and thinking about their role in society, and there's, like, none of that in computer science. Like, there's, like, there's no ethics course you ever take when you go through a computer science program. You seem to have a very strong sense of direction, ethics, and justice. Um, how would you do both the kind of, like, teaching of that and where do you think is the right insertion of those ideas into the people who are going into the roles that you're thinking about? Um, or is it not possible and we have to have things up something totally different around this? 
Okay, so first of all, I love the thing about power. You're right. Um, although I would argue that in the private sector, when you're talking about loans, it, it is, it's, it's bigger than, it's, it's a big deal. And jobs. Um, in terms of ethics, it's really a quandary. And I'll tell you what, like when I got a job as a quanta at D.E. Shaw, they, were, they asked me what, what my SAT scores were. And I was like 34 with three kids. I was like, no memory of that. And, and they asked me, like, did you win the math, math Olympiad when you were in high school? Because we really like people who win those math contests. And I was like, guys, you're focused on the wrong thing. I'm, I'm good at math. That's what you should care about. Um, and so there's this, like, weird fetishization of sort of competition and um, external, I would call them external measurements of worth that I was expected to fall in line with after getting the job of, like, I was expected to care very much about my bonus. That, and if you can get people to care about your bonus, about their bonuses, then you can get them to do anything because they're just laser beam, like, all I care about is this, and they don't think about the consequences of their actions because they're literally, I mean, that, and this sounds like ridiculous, but it's like a Pavlovian response after a certain point, um, which I just never really cared about. So it didn't work on me, but it made me in a better observer of what was going on around me. And it, uh, the answer is it would be really hard to change that dynamic. Um, in terms of data science, that's in finance, and finance is, takes a special kind of person, and they specifically look for that person. They, I, they made an exception for me, and obviously they made a mistake and they regret it. Um, <laughs> but I think, I think there's lots of companies in data science, and actually, here's the thing that ironically might be a good thing, even though it's kind of gross to me, is that they actually think they're making the world a better place, right? And so they might be open to the idea of having ethics training. I mean, it's possible. Data science uh, institutes that are training data scientists absolutely must have ethics, just like medical school or law school. I'm not sure how much really works in those ethics classes. Has anyone ever understood, like measured the success of ethics courses in law school or? Because you have unethical lawyers all over the place, right? I feel like it's, it's kind of, I don't want to be depressing at all, because I do have hope, but mostly from regulation, not from ethics. Um, <laughs> to, to be honest, I mean, I want data scientists to think about this, but I'm not depending on it. At the end of the day, if your company's bottom line, if it's completely the opposite of what is good for the public, you're, en you're gonna end up doing something that's bad for the public. It's kind of like asking oil companies to divest. You know, like, it's not gonna happen. Their, their interests are directly uh, antithetical to doing the right thing. I think there's more hope than you think. Okay, great. We, like, smoking wasn't regulated, it became, low, it became a, not a good habit and it became isolated. I think you could, like, bad data practices could become, like, a culturally bad norm in that community and people might look at it badly. But they'd have to be discoverable. They'd have to, we'd have to have a, like a, a infrastructure where bad data practices led to discovery and to public shame. If we could do that, great, let's do it. Belin? Uh, or, 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 sorry, Belin? Uh, hi, my name is Belin. I am a mid-career student in public administration. Um, one of the questions that is coming to my mind is how do we increase this data and digital literacy? Like, how do you bring that power again to people when it seems like so difficult? and so it's important to me that people don't think I'm asking them to be like taking math classes to deal with this. This is not 
um, a mathematical issue, it's a political issue. So I, in, to answer your question from like way long ago, we do not fight fire with fire for the most part. I think gover like government regulators need to have algorithms that they use to audit the big data algorithms. That's true. But on the public level, on the individual level, we have to organize um, politically, right? So I want teachers who are being assessed by these unfair algorithms, which are basically random number generators, um, but high stakes and anyway, I want them to organize with their fellow teachers and their teacher unions and to fight back against this because it's not fair and it's arbitrary and it's not statistically robust. Um, You're saying sample size of 30. <laughs> sample size of 30 with huge error bars. It's just not good enough. Um, but they don't have to be math experts to do it. Like the, the fact that they're not math experts is preventing them for, from having a voice. But I want them to like believe believe in themselves saying like never mind math this isn't fair on its face like don't use a mathematical argument use a a morality argument or a transparency argument something along those lines yeah. although i should say one last thing that i do blame journalists a little bit and i love journalists are my favorite people because journalists are they're basically skeptics right but the problem is that a lot of journalists are also really afraid of math so we have like this weird thing where tech journalists are often very guilty of just writing down whatever the PR person from a big data firm says. And I'm like, no, stop doing that. <laughs> so we're going to talk later. But, but the truth is, like, tech journalists have to start asking important questions like, well, why do you, how do you know that what you're doing is fair? How do I know? What, well, maybe it's not, you know, you, they have to push back much harder than they do now. So hi, I'm Benjamin. I'm a MVP student here at Kennedy School. So I'm curious, I'm trying to see the other side a little bit more, right? I can see how a well-meaning mid-level teacher would, would think that, all right, if I use an algorithm, it's much fairer than if I were to sort of promote someone arbitrarily. And so they'll be like, okay, I'll go to an algorithm. And second, they might think that if I use an algorithm, if I publish it, it would just gamify the whole system. Everyone's going to game the system just to get the bonus. So I'd rather not use the data and sort of hide, hide behind the secrecy. So I'm wondering what would you tell to some supposedly well-meaning people that, you know, this is really not the better alternative when they see that it is. Okay, so I just want to, as a, as a data scientist, as a person who builds algorithms, I want to explain why um, if you have something that's gameable, then it's a poor, it's a poor thing. It's poorly built. It's flawed. Let me give you an example um, from FICO scores that everyone understands. FICO scores are built on things like whether you... Um, whether you pay your bills on time. It's not perfect. Because FICO scores or credit scores? Credit scores, sorry. FICO credit scores. It's not perfect because of the way, it's mostly because of the way it's used as proxies for your mor moral hygiene, which doesn't make any sense. But <laughs> if, if you just think about it as like probability of default in the future of, for loans, it actually makes sense, right? It's like, do you pay your electricity bill on time? So gaming that would look like, I'm going to pay my electricity bill every month on time, <laughs> right? That's good, right? So gaming something that's good, that's a good measurement of something, makes you better at that thing. We would ideally want a teacher assessment to be transparent and gameable, and when you game it, you're a better teacher. Okay, so that's what, that's what it means to, to be, have a good model. If you have a model that's poor, then you'll say, okay, instead of bothering to check your electricity payments, I'm just going to count the number of books in your house. 
And I'll use the number of books as a proxy for whether you're gonna pay your bills on time. And it's actually a pretty, pretty good proxy. But when, when you make that transparent, people are like, holy shit, I just need to buy a bunch of books. And then I'll look like I have, I'm credit worthy. Hopefully that, books by Kathy O'Neill. <laughs> a bunch of copies. Um, so that's an example of a bad proxy. Um, it's gameable, and, and once people know about it, they look good, but they're not actually good. That, and okay, so now you understand what, means, what gameable means. But the point I'm going to make is that when, when I write weapons of mass destruction, weapons of mass destruction have characteristics. The three characteristics are that they're important, they're secret, and they're destructive. The important thing, the, that first characteristic, it means if, you're, if it's somebody's job is on the line, it's an example of important, right? Somebody's job is on the line, you better not have a weak model. That's not okay. It's not okay to say, I'm just counting your books and I'm gonna decide whether you deserve your job. That's not good. That's not good enough. Which is to say, we should demand transparency and if it's bad, it'll be obviously bad. But if it's bad, you shouldn't use it in the first place. That's kind of my point. My point is like, if these things don't bear scrutiny, then they're not good enough, period, to be used in important ways. I'll do Khalil and then, yeah. I want to pick up on this point. So it, isn't it possible, well, not even possible. So I want to make an assumption. We, have a, we live in a culture of empiricism and innovation. I think two sort of big forces that compel all sorts of people um, to be seduced by algorithms and the, uh, <laughs> the beauty of math. It's also apparent in sort of all the messages about catching up internationally in educational systems. So we need a lot more students to be math literate and therefore America. So essentially all the forces are saying everybody should be in love with math because it's going to make the world a better place, which I think um, I'd love to hear how, how other people sort of in ed reform who are you know, really committed to um, you know, both STEM promotion as well as metrics and database policy solutions, which to me all swirl in this cultural zeitgeist uh, where we're supposed to be enamored. And it's not an accident that the, the finance industry um, sort of sets the template for how we think about efficiency in everything we do. So to the last point you made, in the policing space, part of this bad modeling problem is that the best predictors of wrongdoing are often impossible to measure. So there's a huge gap. Um, so you're, you're using books as an example. Um, but you know, essentially, at some point, someone comes along and says, we're going to make the most of what we actually have. So a zip code happens you know, to be the best that we can use to predict that this individual who lives in this zip code is likely to reoffend or likely to uh, offend the first time. So we're just going to stop them now and put them in a the system. So I wanted to hear more about, in your research process, how consciously do people admit to these bad proxies, which create bad models, because in the end, they can't find um, the metrics or the measure or way to capture data that would produce a better model. And I'm not suggesting there is one in policing, because we have this constitutional right to innocence. Um, but anyway. Thanks for mentioning that. Um, I'm afraid it's. Uh, uh, I'm afraid the story. The answer is kind of sad, um, but I do want to make the point once again that like zip code is actually a pretty good predictor of 
and I won't call it reoffend because reoffend makes it sound like anybody who reoffends or offends in the first place will get caught. A lot of these crimes that people get arrested for have to do with mental health problems or addiction problems or low-level drug crimes, and the and and the arrest records are much more, just as much a reflection of the police practices in that neighborhood as they are of the actual crimes existing. So. Um, I don't like to call them crime data. I like to call it arrest records because, you know, and what, what I'm saying is zip codes are actually good predictors of police. We're predicting the police. And the police are relatively easy to predict because they keep on going back to the same neighborhoods, um, which is to say the same zip codes. So I talked to someone who works in recid who builds recidivism risk, um, like an, an anonymous interview. And um, I asked him if he ever uses race. And he, he works for um, a state, the state prison system. And he said, no, I never use race. That would be wrong. And I said, well, do you ever use zip code? And he said, well, sometimes, because it makes it so much more accurate. And I'm like, okay. So here's what the, what's going on here is that they are essentially being paid to be as accurate as possible. That is their definition of success. Um, and what they realize is that they've used proxies like, like zip code um, and whether the person has mental health problems, and sometimes even whether their father was in prison. That was, that's actually one of the questions in one of these recidivism risk algorithms. Um, they get a much more accurate risk score, which of course, it's actually unconstitutional to ask, you know, to be punished for the fact that your father was in prison. But they're not being tested, as PhD mathematicians, they're not being tested on fairness. They're being tested on accuracy. And on the other part, the people who, who hire these consultants, they work for the state uh, prison system, they, they have this attitude that the, the mathematician PhD is making those smart decisions. I don't have to scrutinize this. So there's like both of them are holding the other at arm's length. They're assuming the other person is taking responsibility for these kinds of questions. Um, and or, and I, when I ask this person, does, is there anyone in the state um, prison system who ever asks you or talks to you about which attributes you use to make your model as accurate as possible, that person's like, oh no, there's no one, no one there wants to talk to me about that. They want me to be in charge of that. So again, there's like, this is, I, I think of algorithms, and you guys probably are, are very thoughtful about this kind of thing, but their algorithms are like mechanisms by which people um, avoid responsibility. <laughs> All right, I think we have time for one or two last questions. We'll do uh, Akriti and then Richard. Hi. Hi. I'm Akriti. I'm a policy uh, master's candidate at the Ed School here. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, on the note of activism and organizing, how feasible is it, do you think, to push for um, making these private algorithms public? Which ones? Um, teacher value model, for one. Um, I don't know. I think I, there's no precedent in it as far as I know. Um, there's no precedent for it. And I, I feel like there's a bunch of teacher unions that should be working on this right now, mm -hmm. but they've been cowed by, the, by politics and by, by, the, uh, by the statistics itself. I mean, and by the way, I, I have this, this scatter plot that just shows like people, like people who got in two scores in a given year to show how inconsistent their scores are. Either there was like this uh, New York Post actually um, like publicly shamed a bunch of teachers by posting their names and their scores. And this smart high school math teacher, Gary Rubenstein at Stuyvesant High School, 
found teachers that had two scores. There were more than 600 of them. And just he plotted them. And it was, so if you imagine like somebody who has an 88 and a zero is over here. And I say that because there's somebody with an 88 and a zero. And more generally, the scatter plot, it looks like uniform distribution, just dots everywhere. Like there's no consistency. For the same year, for the same subject, like seventh grade math, eighth grade math. I went to the New York City um, Department of Education recently, and they, they do their own internal value-added model nowadays, and I asked just for that scatter plot, and they refused to give it to me. So, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like we could, if we could just get that, you know, for all the different urban school systems that are using this value-added model, then it would be dead in the water, but we don't have access to that. And so they're holding on to it as tightly as possible because, because of exactly this problem. Richard? So I want to thank you for uh, this talk and for the book, and I was fascinated by it. I'm trained as an economist, and you're the people who were good enough at mathematics to become economists, but not good enough to become mathematicians. <laughs> so, so I think a real interesting follow-through on this conversation would be among students and faculty here, those who want to, to talk about how the Kennedy School curriculum actually is addressing these questions. I've taught here for almost a quarter century, and a great deal of what we introduce our students to in core economics and statistics courses actually are part of the problem that you're describing. Say more. Well, first of all, <laughs> that the introductory economics course is fundamentally a neoclassical-based micro-foundations model, even for macro policy. And it looks hesitantly at the state's intervention in the markets and awards a statutory preference to markets wherever possible. That's one. The second is that the statistics courses are good at introducing the students standard statistical models and in limited helpful ways telling them how to choose among different uh, models uh, for application. But there is no deep dive that I'm aware of in which the kinds of questions, except David's course, of course, uh, in most courses, <laughs> there are always, as you know in, in mathematics and probability, there are always exceptions to the rule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I just want to say that I think that this is very important because I think the Kennedy School is a kind of a crossroads. This is a generation that has suddenly become aware of inequality as a huge centerpiece of their generation going forward, as growth was in the 1950s and 60s, was and I, I think we have a, a, a duty, an obligation, to familiarize these students with the relationship between mathematics, uh, statistical analysis, economic models, and inequality, because it's going to be the daunting, haunting question of the 21st century. Here, here. Great. Uh, I'll take uh, one more question because I know we had a lot of uh, a lot of questions. Any anyone? We'll go right here. Hi, I'm Meg Live. I'm a public policy student here. My question: So, when you're talking about additional regulation, how deep in the private sector do you think it's appropriate for that to go? So, when we're talking, obviously, you're talking about using algorithms to determine people's health care. That definitely seems like something that they should be looking into. When you're talking about private companies using algorithms to determine promotions or bonuses or something that's very internal to that company, is that something that the government should be getting involved in from your perspective? I mean, are there laws about it already? It's, it's kind of a crude first approximation. So there definitely are laws about hiring. Right, so yes. Um, in terms of promotion, I, I think there are laws about that, right? You can't just promote men, right? Um, so my thought experiment on that score is like a machine learning algorithm um, 
for Fox News anchors. Um, you know, for machine learning algorithm, you need the historical data, which would be like the historical people who've applied to be anchors at Fox News. And then you need a definition of success, and the definition of success could be something like, you're there for five years and you get promoted twice. And um, I usually have a big picture of Roger Ailes when I give this thought experiment. But the point being that like, you know, Roger Ailes systematically prevented women from succeeding at Fox News. So if you, if you implement that machine learning algorithm, you're gonna systematically filter out women applications in the future. Um, that, that's unfair, that's illegal, um, and yes, there are laws about that. Um, and we should, we should use them. Now, I'm not saying that there's, it's gonna be um, easy for a regulator to, to jump in on every single company that, that uses algorithms. Um, but one of the things I'm trying to do with my life from now on is to build a company um, which does algorithmic auditing at kind of a consulting level because I'm hoping that companies will start acknowledging their own re um, responsibilities in these, in these matters. And then I'm hoping to develop tools that I can then give to Consumer Financial Production Bureau or something like that, open source tools that will be relatively quick um, to, to set up for a given example. I mean, I'm just, that's kind of hopeful. Maybe it won't work like that, but um, yeah, I mean, I think we need to do this. I, I think actually what happens has to happen is that if, if, that there has to be some kind of regulatory framework so that if companies decide to use algorithms to hire, they have to, they have to make those things auditable. You know what I mean? So they have to make their, their things set up so that it can be audited by standard auditing algorithms. Mm. Um, and then it'll be faster to check. And it should be monitored, not just audited once, because these things live and they change over time. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to say it's going to be a perfect system, but the uh, theoretically, going back to our conversation earlier, like, it could make it a better world, right? We could actually be doing it better if we keep track of this stuff. Kathy, I feel like we could probably go on for another hour. Uh, but... Uh, everybody has class to go to and things to do. But thank you so much thank for coming. You. It's Thanks really exciting. Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.